Jesus, thank you again for the truth of your word and for the fact that you are the truth and you are the word made flesh, that you carved out the way for us, that you came to us. When we never could have made our way to you, there's no way we could have ever earned or deserved your love. And yet you give it to us freely. And out of the reality of your character and who you are. Love and salvation and mercy and grace is poured out on us. And even though we are broken. You heal us and you were broken so that we could become whole. We are so grateful to be reminded of that this morning. Help us to live in that reality. Take us to an even deeper understanding and knowledge and even more experience of that truth today. See your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so today we are wrapping up our uh, series that we've been in together uh, through the Old Testament. Every fall, we intentionally come back to the Old Testament uh, and root ourselves again in the Old Testament. It's part of our normal rhythm uh, as a church family together. Uh, through Advent, we anticipate the arrival of Jesus. And then uh, at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. After that, we walk through the ministry of Jesus until we get to the season of Lent, in which we walk with Jesus towards the cross. And then we celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. All of that is a part of seeing ourselves in this arc of a story, a real story that we are a part of. And to make sure that we are rooting ourselves in that full story, every fall we come back to the Old Testament and make sure that we're getting rooted in that as well. We don't want it to be a rut that we get stuck in, just kind of a closed loop that we get stuck in. But instead, we see this using the imagery of the rings inside a tree where year after year it's the same pattern and you can see and trace the same exact pattern of that tree's growth and yet you see that it's expanding year after year it's expanding and there's that visible growth and that that growth that you can see and so that's our prayer as we keep moving through the story of scripture over and over again we believe that this story the reality of scripture has the power to change our lives to transform us when it takes root inside of us we believe that about the word of god and so over and over again, we want to root ourselves in it. And as we see the rings expand year after year, we're praying that the roots will go deeper and that the reach of the branches will go wider and that the fruit of the spirit will grow on our branches for a hungry world around us to taste. That's our prayer over and over. So we've been moving through the Old Testament together and particularly through the five core covenants that we find in the Old Testament. We understand that as we approach scripture, this can be a book that is confusing. It is difficult for us to get our minds around. Uh, it can be a troublesome book, right? As, as we come in contact with this and as we try to engage with the truth of scripture, it can be difficult for us to engage with it. 
And so as we're looking at these five core covenants, it's giving us a framework to understand the story, the larger story and the story that we find ourselves in because of God's engagement with humanity in the world. We believe that the Bible is one unified book. We believe that God is the author of this book, that the Holy Spirit inspires the writing of this book. And we believe that. And we know at the same time that the way that he did that was that he moved through real life people at particular points in time in history. So it's one book with one author. And at the same time, what we have here in front of us is we have 66 different books. It's a collection of 66 different books written by more than 40 different authors over the course of a thousand years. And yet we understand that through that, there's this unified story, two testaments, three different languages that it gets written in. And yet one unified story. And at the heart of that story is the person of Jesus. And so as we're going through these five core covenants, we're using this as a framework for helping us to understand the story, not just to memorize these so that we have more information about the Bible in our minds, but so that we can sink down into it and we can see ourselves as a part of this story. This is our story too. This is your story. The story of God's engagement with humanity. So let's talk about uh, those five covenants again. Let's remind ourselves and go retrace our steps a little bit. I told you, I warned you several weeks ago, I was going to make you do this every week. All right, Chris, I listened to your message last week. Let's thank, uh, I almost said Pastor Chris, Dr. Chris Clark. <laughs> professor Chris, sorry, he's a professor at UNC, but Pastor Chris, maybe, who knows, the prophetic word, maybe, we'll see, all right. <laughs> Y'all keep dropping those hints to him, okay? Um, and so Chris did an awesome job last week of walking us through that covenant that God makes with the people through Moses, I noticed he didn't make y'all like repeat this. Okay. So he let you off the hook for a week. I'm bringing you back in. Okay. So we're going to say this together. I will say it. And then you repeat after me. Okay. Number one, Adam and Eve. Number two, Noah. Number three, Abraham. Number four, Moses. And number five, David. Yes, I made it through the whole series without forgetting one of those. Okay, I'm very happy right now. All right. So today we're going to be in the story of David. And so those five covenants, uh, we've talked before about how they can, we can see them as a timeline of salvation history, of God's engagement with humanity in the world, that these are the large pivot points of the story. And there are other very significant events, of course, that fall on that timeline, but they tend to fall within these five large frames. Or we could think about it in terms of art, uh, a mosaic, where these are the five largest pieces in the mosaic and the other pieces are very significant as well, of course. But the five pieces really help frame that larger picture for us. And all together, that picture forms an image of Jesus, who Jesus is and why Jesus came. 
So as we're moving through these covenants, we remember that in each of the covenants, what God is doing is he's forming a partnership with humanity. A partnership. So that's one of the key words we need to think about when we think about God's covenants with humanity throughout history is partnership. That word might throw you off because it might sound like we're saying we're somehow equal with God and we're entering into this agreement on equal footing. Not at all. We believe that God is sovereign and even in the uh, historic use of covenants in the ancient Near East around this same time, usually there's one uh, person in the covenant who is the sovereign, who's the one who is over. So we're not talking about an equal footing here, but we are talking about a grounding of grace. That is, God invites us into relationship. He's beginning with this point of grace. Relationship with God is not something we deserve or could earn or could win or work our way into. It begins with grace of him reaching out to us and initiating that relationship, a grounding of grace. And so God, in each of these, he makes a partnership and he chooses one representative to represent the rest of the people in that partnership. And so Adam and Eve representing all of humanity and, and then throughout like that. So there's a partnership and he chooses one person to be a representative. Now we remember that when God makes a promise to this representative, it's not just for that person and it's not just to that person, but it is through that person to the larger group of humanity that God is making this partnership with. And the same is true for this covenant we're looking at today, this covenant with King David. David is a beloved figure in Israel's history. Obviously, Abraham and, and Moses are these massive figures in history. But there's this sense of deep love that the people have for King David and seeing David as this hero type of figure and this deep love for King David. And so this is a significant moment uh, in Israel's history. And as we move through the rest of this, as we see Jesus's connection to this. So today we're going to be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. All right, so I know that's kind of a larger section of scripture, but we can do it, all right? So let's get into this together. Second, cha uh, Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Here's what it says. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet. Now, the first prophet that we come in contact with in David's story, we're going to talk about a little bit today, is Samuel. And Samuel is this significant transitional figure, pivotal figure in Israel's history. But at this point in the story, as David has been established as king and Samuel has passed away, and now Nathan has been raised up as God's voice to David and as God's voice to the people of Israel as his prophet. God, uh, David said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Did, did Nathan stop and pray? 
and asked God what he wanted to do in that moment? No. Does it seem like David stopped and prayed and asked what God wanted him to do in that moment? No. The response was, hey, go for it. God is with you. So do whatever is in your mind. That's not the best advice. All right. That is not the best advice. So here's what happens next. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant, David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all of the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. Now listen to this. This is where it really leans in here. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. You will come from who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod, with floggings. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. How about that? So we have this key moment in Israel's history. David has become the king. And David wants to honor God by building a temple for God. All of the other nations around him, they built temples for their gods. They build these elaborate dwelling places for their gods. David has built a house for himself, has established a palace for himself as the king in the capital city of Jerusalem that, that David establishes as the capital city. And he says, what am I doing? Here I am living in this palace, and yet God is still living in a tent. I'm going to build him a house. And God responds with this powerful moment. It's actually a, a play on words here that, that God is getting at with the, with the word house. Okay, 
So what David is thinking of, I'm going to build you a house as in a temple, a dwelling place. And God says, no, actually, I'm going to build you a house. But I'm not talking about a dwelling place. I'm talking about the use of that word in terms of a monarchy, in terms of a dynasty, in terms of a family line. The house of David, as in the descendants of David, will be on the throne forever. And he says, you're not going to build a house for me, David. I'm going to build a house for you. And one of your descendants will be on the throne of Israel forever. So as we unpack this together, I know there's a lot to get through here. Um, as we unpack this together, a couple of things that we need to see. All right. First of all, is that play on words that we see at work there. But also we see the backdrop of what Chris was teaching us about last week with the story of Moses. That at the story of Moses, after God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt, delivers them, raises Moses up as this liberator and leads them out of that oppressive slavery that they were under in Egypt. Then God promises to dwell with his people and they build this tent for God according to his specifications and is this mobile home that God lives in. All right. From place to place, as this nomadic people is in, they are on this journey through the wilderness, God goes with them. And when they pack up their stuff and move to the next place, God's tent gets packed up and moves along with them as well. And his presence stays with them throughout that time. Once they get settled in the promised land that God has given them after Moses passes away and uh, Joshua is raised up behind Moses, leads them into the promised land and they get settled there. They begin to govern themselves. There, there are 12 tribes of Israel at that point, and they begin to govern themselves with these different judges that come up from the different tribes. But they come to God and they say, we're tired of being led by judges. We need a king. And all of our problems have to do with the fact that we don't have a king. We don't have a strong enough leader. It's not our problem. It's our leader's problem. All right. And so we don't have a strong enough leader. We need a king. And so they choose a king for themselves. And they choose King Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. And what are the specifications for choosing Saul? It says he was taller than everybody else. All right. Saul was head and shoulders above the others. In other words, they looked at Saul and they were like, that guy looks like a king. Let's follow him. And God allows them to do that. But it's very clear in this moment that Saul becomes the choice of the people and not the choice of God. God allows them to do that, but that's not his choice. And as we see, even in that very beginning moment, we know where this story is going to go. And Saul is unfaithful to God. Saul is unfaithful. And so David says, it's, I mean, God says, it's now time for me to choose my own king, the one that I want. The one who is after my own heart, a king who has a heart like mine. And so... He commissions the prophet Samuel. Samuel is such an interesting figure. He's a priest and he's a prophet and he's a judge at the same time. Really odd figure in Israel's history. But he stands as this transition moment. 
And God commissions him to go to anoint the new king. And he says, I want you to go to the house of Jesse. And I want you to choose one of the sons of Jesse to be the next king. So he goes and he tells Jesse this incredibly good news. And Jesse's like, all right, let's let's do this. And he's excited about that. And he brings his sons out and he lines up his seven sons. And he says, surely it's got to be one of these. And as Samuel looks down the line, there's this sense from the Holy Spirit that the king is not here. The king is not among one of these seven sons. And in his sense of confusion, he turns to Jesse and he says, is this it? Is there another one? Because the king's not here. I know God sent me here to pick the king, but the king's not here. And Jesse says, well, there's one other, but I mean, it can't be him. He's the youngest out of all of them. This is a patriarchal culture where the oldest gets everything right. It can't be him. Plus, we've got him like doing the errands. He's shepherding the sheep out in the field. I didn't bother to call him in for this. And Samuel says, go get him and I will sit here until he comes back. I'm not going anywhere. We're all waiting until you get him. They go, they bring David in. The youngest out of all of them. And as David approaches, Samuel senses the Holy Spirit whispered the truth. This is the one. This is my choice for king. And the Lord tells Samuel in that moment, others look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he says, I have found in this heart a heart like mine, and this will be the king. And so Samuel anoints there in the presence of his brothers and his dad, Samuel anoints David as the king. This is a key moment here. Because that process of the prophet anointing, it means that he would pour oil over David's head. And it would be symbolic that now the presence of the Holy Spirit is covering this person. And that's what anointing represented in that culture and, and in that time. And so he anoints David as the king. Now there's a gap here between the time when David gets anointed and when he actually becomes king. And in this in-between time, Saul is still the king over Israel. And it's in this moment that we get one of the most uh, popular stories associated with David. David and? Exactly. All right. Well done. Awesome. So it's during this time that, that we get this story. Again, David is still in obscurity. He's still a shepherd out there. He's been anointed as the king. He's been chosen by God, yet he's still living in this obscurity. In this same time, uh, a, an enemy has come up against Israel, the Philistines, and they are challenging Israel to this battle. And the Philistines actually have their, uh, they are actually Greek in origin. They're the, they're, they have migrated here, but that's where they're from. And so you can see in some of their traditions, some of the echoes of that. And so the way that they would fight their battles is they would choose one hero to send out and they would say, we're going to send our hero and you send us yours and whoever wins that that's whose army wins. We're not going army against army here. We're going hero versus hero. And so they send out Goliath, a giant, right? Who comes out and it melts the hearts of the Israelite army. They are so overcome by fear. There's not one person among them who is willing to risk their lives to go out there and to fight Goliath because they know it's a hopeless cause. 
They know it's a hopeless cause. And Saul should have been the one. Why did they pick Saul again? He was the tallest, all right? Hey, you're the closest in size. Get out there. You, got, you get to guard him, all right? As a basketball player, I hated that moment. I'm like, oh, I got to guard the tall guy. Okay. So it should have been Saul. He's the one who's been picked to be God's representative. But he was trembling in fear. He wouldn't do it. And no one else would do it. They were following Saul's lead. And no one else would do it either. David shows up. Basically, he comes just to bring food to his brothers because he's not even old enough to be in the army yet. He brings food to his brothers who are there in the army. He sees what is happening and he says, I'll go. I'll go. I know that the Lord is with me and whether I survive it or not, I will go. And David volunteers to go. Everyone thinks it's a mockery because he's too young and he's too small and he's the most unlikely person to take to that battlefield and come out victorious. But he says, I know that the Lord is with me. This battle is not about sword or spear or shield. This battle is about the Lord and the power and the strength of God himself. And I will go in his strength. And so Saul, trying to help out in some way, says, David, you can wear my armor. I will let you borrow my armor. Now, I'm not going to go with you, but my armor will go with you. And so they put Saul's armor on David. And of course, it doesn't fit. And there's more to that than just the physical not fitting, right? It doesn't fit. It's not the right armor for David. He said, this isn't me. And so he leaves this. He says, I'm taking what I've got. And he takes this unconventional weapon of a sling and he goes to the stream and he picks out five smooth stones. And David, the smallest out of all of them, steps into the gap of that valley to face a giant with nothing but five stones, a sling, and one other thing. Oh yeah, the presence of God himself. And you know how the story goes. David is victorious. From there, David's story continues to build off of this. And David becomes known as a great warrior of God and as a king who leads after God's own heart. One of the things we said in the first Sunday that we talked about when we were talking about these covenants is in the partnership and in the representation that God chooses, every single representative that God chooses fails. Every one of them fails, and David is no different. David is no different. David fails in some tragic ways, in his lack of trust of God in some ways, and, and, and in other ways, deeply tragic, in abusing his own power. Many of you will remember the story of David and Bathsheba. We're not going to go into that full story today. If you want uh, more on that. We did an entire sermon on that a while back, and I can send that to you if you if you want to dive more into that. But here's what you need to know first off. David and Bath, the story of ba David and Bathsheba is not a story of a love affair. It's not a story about passion. It's a story about a king who is chosen by God, 
who is a mighty warrior, who has the power of all of the military at his back, who has all of the power you can imagine in a culture, and abusing that power. against a woman whose husband was away at war for the king who had no power in that day and time and that culture. That's what that story is about. It's not about temptation in the way that we think of it. It's not about that the kids present here today. It's not about that. It's about an abuse of power from the person who doesn't only have the political and military power, but he's seen as having the spiritual authority and power as well. It's gut-wrenching. It's tragic. And that's what that story is about. David failed. David failed. David failed. His failure spans far beyond just that moment as well. But the reality is, that just like every other representative that God chooses in each of these five covenants, they all fail and they all fail miserably and show the brokenness of humanity and show how desperate we are, not just for a good leader to represent us, but for someone to come and save us. We can't do this, God. We continue to enter into partnership with you and we make this covenant with you and you know we're going to break it. You know we're going to fail on our end. And God says, I know. But I continue to step into this covenant, not because I know you're going to fail, but because I know I will never fail. And no matter how many times you break this covenant, I will never break my word. I will never break my covenant. And at every place where you fail, I will be faithful. And the way that we see that come to its fulfillment and its most beautiful fruition is in the way that the passage that we read today gets fully fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now, like many prophecies of the Old Testament, they have an immediate fulfillment in a certain way that you can see in that day and time. But then they also have this eternal kind of fulfillment, a deeper level of fulfillment that gets fulfilled through Jesus. And so in a certain way, this prophecy gets fulfilled and this covenant gets fulfilled through David's actual son, Solomon, who does go on to build the temple of God. So you can see the way it has an immediate fulfillment. But beyond that, in a way that the people could never have imagined or even dared to hope for, Jesus fulfills this far beyond their imagination. And their highest hopes were not deep enough. And Jesus is the deepest Hope, And he comes and he fulfills this to become the true king of Israel. He's born where? In the town of David. When? Under a time of oppression from the Roman Empire. When the people are longing and begging for God to rescue them. God, don't forget your promise to us. Here we are again. We're under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Come and save us. And God doesn't just send a representative out from the people. He sends his own son. God comes himself to rescue us and 
to save us. He's born in David's family. He's born in David's time. At the beginning of his ministry, his, the beginning gets marked by a prophet who speaks an anointing over his life, like the echo of Samuel and David from the Old Testament. As John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, not just oil being poured over his head, but he's taken under the water and immersed fully in this. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, it's not just symbolic of the Holy Spirit anointing him, but the Holy Spirit descends upon him. In the ancient times, when Israel would anoint a new king, they would recite Psalm chapter 2 in this moment in Psalm chapter 2, where God says, this will be my son and I will be his father. And what happens at the baptism of Jesus? But heaven splits open and God's own voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him and follow him. He preaches the kingdom. This is how Jesus began his very first sermon, his very first message he starts with is repent for the kingdom of God is near. You don't say that when the Roman Empire is in control unless you know what you're doing or unless you want to get taken out quickly. And it wasn't a message that got lost on the first people who heard it. The kingdom, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is back. Is this is this the David we've been waiting for? The kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom is here. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he begins to preach this good news about the kingdom. He gathers how many disciples does Jesus gather? Twelve. Exactly. He's got this inner core of three and then a larger group of probably around 120 but then there are the 12 that we most often identify as his disciples. How many tribes of Israel again? 12. When was the last time they were unified? Under the kingdom reign of David and Solomon. So he's reunifying the 12 again. Who built the first temple? Solomon. And Jesus stands at the temple and says, I know who, who, I know who you remember building the first temple. Guess what? This temple, tear it down. And I'll rebuild it in three days. And his disciples later write, we didn't realize it at the time, but he was talking about his own body. Tear this temple down and I will raise it back up in three days. He is the temple. He is the good shepherd. That's how he describes himself. And when he does that, they can't help but think of King David. He's the one who in the triumphal entry as he's headed into Jerusalem, as he's headed towards the cross and the people are celebrating him and saying, behold, the king, the king has come. The king has finally arrived. Save us. The king of Israel. It's reminiscent of David dancing through the city as he brings the ark of God back into Jerusalem. And then, of course, as Jesus goes to the crucifixion and goes to the cross, we see an unlikely leader using an unexpected weapon to carry out an unconventional strategy. This time, it's not against a giant who's standing on the other side of the valley. This time, it's about the giants of sin and death. That he brings down, not by stone and sling, but by cross and stone rolled away. Through the resurrection of Jesus 
Christ. This is the reality. Most of the people could see glimmers of that. They were shocked at the way the story went. This is not how the story is supposed to go. The king is not supposed to die like this. They wanted a king like David. A warrior who's going to expand the reach of Israel. Who's going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. They wanted a king like David. But instead, they got a king like David. An unexpected leader who comes out of obscurity. Who uses an unconventional weapon to carry out an unexpected strategy. To save the world by dying for it. And then, of course, after his resurrection, we see the ascension of Jesus. Where his reign is established forever. Forever. Echoing the promise that God makes in the covenant to David. A son of David. A king from your line will be the king of God's people forever and ever and ever. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the anointed shepherd king who truly leads with God's heart. He is the fulfillment of the story. On his last night with his disciples, Jesus takes all of this to a completely different level. As they're sharing in the Passover meal together and they're remembering their history as God's people and how God had delivered them in the past. Jesus says, that's only the beginning. And the way I'm going to deliver you now, you never could have seen coming. But this is the fulfillment of it all. This is the fulfillment of the story. And he uses this language. He calls the cup, the cup of what? Anybody remember? Say it loud if you know it. The new covenant. The new covenant. All five of those previous covenants, I fulfilled them. I've kept the promise. But all of your expectations, your highest hopes, were not deep enough. And the way that I'm fulfilling this is actually by sacrificing Myself, Jesus says, the covenant with Adam and Eve at creation, I am the new creation. What went wrong in the garden is going to be set right through me. The covenant with Noah, we recognize that sin must be judged, but God will provide a rescue. I am the rescue. And more than that, Jesus says, the judgment for sin is on me. I'm taking that upon myself Abraham was promised a family I'm the fulfillment of that I am the child of promise I'm the brightest star in Abraham's sky Moses was raised up to be a liberator I am here to set you free not just from the chains of Egypt but from the chains of sin and death David was promised a king who would sit on his throne from his line forever. I am the fulfillment of that. Not a king like David, but a king like David. In the way you could not have even expected. Leading truly with God's heart. An anointed shepherd king. And he took the bread that was on the table. He said it's all being fulfilled 
in this. This bread is my body, broken for you to make you whole. And this cup is the blood of the new covenant. God's promise is true, will never be broken. And at every place where you fail, I will be faithful. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are invited into a reconciled relationship with a God who keeps his promises. We're going to mark that together today. We're going to invite you to come forward and to share in this communion meal. And uh, as you do, there are obviously here two stations. And as you engage in this, remember this full story, the full scope of it, but also know this is your story too. This is your story too. And you are invited into this as well. Come and share in the grace of King Jesus. Amen.